0: from Romans chapter 13. Actually, we're working our way through the last part of Romans. The first part of Romans deals with what we should believe, what we are to believe, what Christians believe. And then from chapter 12 on, it talks about the will of God and how we're to behave. Chapter 12, it focused on our relationship with the church, using our gifts. And in Romans 13, it talks about our relationship with the state. And the text that we'll look at this morning addresses a couple of interesting questions, especially in an election year, in the dawn of tax season. Why should we submit to governmental authority? On what basis should we do so? And why should we pay taxes? Look what it says in Romans chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, Then respect. If honor, then honor. Why submit to the authorities? Why submit to government leaders? When Paul writes this, he writes to individuals in Rome, and the emperor was over the Roman people, and he gives two reasons, because of possible punishment. He literally says they don't bear the sword for nothing. Governments, Rome, not excluded had military support to enforce the law. So why should you submit to the authorities? Because you'll be punished if you don't. This is not a uniquely Christian reason. Everyone does what they're supposed to do because they don't want to be punished. The second is a uniquely Christian reason. It says because of conscience. Because of conscience. In the context, conscience relative to being conscious of God is an awareness that whether willingly or unwillingly, the ruler is God's agent. That's what it means because of conscience, to understand that whether the one in authority acknowledges God or not, they're still God's agent. And uh, so, why Do we honor the authorities Not because it's the safest thing to do alone, but because it's the right thing to do. And what we find here in this passage, and another one we'll look at, undergirding all secular law and order is the authority of God. Delegating that authority to those who rule. And they are God's servants, even though they might not feel like they're God's servants, even though they might not believe in God. They are still God's servants in the sense that it is God who has granted them the authority with which they secure and maintain civil civic order. Well, that's why submit to the authorities. Why pay taxes? Same reasons. Because of possible punishment and because of conscience. It says believers are to respect and honor governing authorities and pay taxes because these authorities have been appointed by God. Uh, There were many taxes that were needed from the provinces, Of the Roman Empire, they had a very expansive empire, and there was a number of ways that they exacted revenue from their empire. Uh, Taxes paid for a good system of roads, law and order, security. You lived within the confines of the Roman Empire. You were fairly safe. Um, Religious freedom they had granted. A certain degree of religious freedom. Jews experienced a great degree of religious freedom. Everybody had to bow down before the emperor and acknowledge that the emperor was divine. It was the cult of the emperor where they believed that this guy's not just in charge, but he's divine. And what we're going to see is that we're to respect governing authorities, but not fear them. Fear in the sense of the ultimate devotion given to God so it's not going to say interestingly fear the emperor it says respect him because although he's in place he is not God and the Romans would have believed he is but not Christians Uh, so these individuals are put in place by God but they are not God Um, but the taxes afforded that certain amount of self-government and other benefits Uh, they had a toll system and well because you could travel from one place to another safely they didn't have toll stations but you were required to pay a fee periodically if you were wandering around within the Roman Empire because you could do so without fearing. And so you paid a toll to do so. In the case of conquered nations like Israel, which was a nation conquered by Rome, the emperor appointed a governor who was in charge of collecting taxes and making sure that that Government stayed loyal to Rome. In turn, these Roman governors contracted with local people that actually did the collecting. The governors were responsible, but they put individuals in place, cheap tax collector and other minions to collect the taxes. These tax collectors were not particularly popular because they were Jews. And what they would do, the Roman government said, You need to give us so much per person. Whatever you can tack on to that as a surtax, you can put in your pocket. And you can imagine that these people who chafed at giving taxes to Rome to begin with because they had to support their own government as well, and the elaborate rituals that were involved with Judaism, that you had to pay for that. They had to shell out money to the Roman government as well, and then they had to give more money so this Jewish tax collector could take the surcharge, stuff it in his pocket, and have a nice life. They were not particularly popular. They returned the required amount of money over to the government and kept the rest. It didn't help Jesus at all that he showed kindness to these tax collectors. Had dinner with them which was a sign of a relationship. He was willing to do that. In fact, one of the disciples was a tax collector. Anybody know who that one is? Matthew. He used to be Levi. He was a tax collector. And that, again, didn't would not have bode well for Jesus. These people were considered as the very lowest part of society, and I think we can imagine why. Uh, As Jesus did in his famous render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is to God, Paul tells followers of Christ to honor God by submitting to authority and paying tax. Uh, Give Again, in the text, give everyone what you owe him. You owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, and respect. If honor, then honor. Um, one of the motives, and we've talked about this briefly, why I think Paul is saying this, and Peter will say the same thing, is that uh, Jews believed that God's will was that Ezra, Israel would come out from under Roman authority. And they believed that Israel should rebel against Rome, like they did against the different other powers that governed them in the past. And what they believed was that God would fight for them and would allow them to throw over any power that conquered them. Uh, Paul would have dealt with the pressure to get involved with this. You know, Paul was a Roman citizen. Come on, Paul, let's, let's move. Let's get going. You know, we are... You are a Jew, you're a Roman, but certainly you understand the Bible says that God is the God of Israel and certainly you understand that he wants us to overthrow Rome. And Paul um, said, no, no. What he said is, respect the emperor. He is in place because God put him in place. You can imagine how that landed for somebody who had Jewish sensibilities. It didn't land well. He urged Gentiles to fear God and honor the emperor. And that was Paul, and then Peter. Peter, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter was the apostle to the Jews, primarily. But he said the same thing. We find the same sort of sentiments. Look what it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king, as the supreme authority, or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone love the brotherhood of believers fear god honor the king again the fear there is not terror it's the ultimate understanding that this is the one who is in control so fear in the sense that render him absolute obedience god is in control respect the emperor But he is underneath God's ultimate control. So it's fear in that sense. We might call it reverence, ultimate obedience. It's not terror, but certainly it's the understanding that you're the one that flips the switches. And that's what Peter indicates. In order to close the loopholes, he tells his readers to submit to the king and the people he puts in place. Governors is another name for those whom the emperor puts in place and the governors put in place to be able to get things done. And this included, you guessed it, tax collectors. And that did not sit very well. Like Paul, Peter links citizenship on a horizontal plane and obedience on a vertical plane. He doesn't, these things are fuzzy. It's, there's, there's some tension involved. He says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Christians were were charged with a lot of crazy things. By those who wanted to create trouble they were they were charged with having these very decadent meetings they meet at nighttime and there's there's blood there and they drink it and they and they're anarchists and and they teach Christians that Christians don't honor the government they don't honor society they have their own things and and what peter is is telling them Um, To submit to the government, Christians demonstrate that they're not anarchists. They are good citizens. They extinguish the criticisms of those who are ignorant and revile them. Okay. What we talk about when you come to a text, there's three things that you ask, three things that you do. You observe, interpret, and apply. And these address three different questions. Observe. What does it say? We've looked at what it says. We've observed. But then you go on to interpret. And then you say, what does it mean? What does this mean to submit to the governing authority? And thirdly, observe, interpret, and apply. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us today? Let's let's mess around with some of these questions. Um, It does raise, this text does raise, though, some disturbing questions. God puts governing authorities in place. What about oppressive government authorities? What about that? Are we supposed to just lie down and and allow the governing authorities to tell us to do whatever they want us to do, even if it's against God? Um, what we find biblically is that there were times where Jesus was commanded to do something, and he didn't follow it because it was against what God wanted him to do. Same thing with Peter. And they brought Peter in and, and said, we and the Jewish authorities said, do not speak any more about Jesus. It was a direct command. And Peter says, okay, you know what? Well, you can decide for yourself whether it's right or wrong, but we can't, not, we, we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. So do do your worst. But then he didn't sneak around and do it. He invited us. So there are times where when the government asks something that you don't do it. However, um, there are a lot of times where things are a little bit fuzzier. And governments seem to get away with things. And we wonder, how does that work? What we find is that when God puts governments in place, they are his agents. And he's watching. God holds leaders accountable. What he says in Thessalonians. Um, look what it says in Second Thessalonians 1. To those in Thessalonica who were being troubled. He says God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. I don't know what this looks like, but there is a reckoning for those who, functioning in places of leadership, use their leadership in order to subdue, abuse, they misuse their authority. There will be a reckoning. I don't know exactly what this looks like, but we certainly see... When Jesus went to war with individuals in Israel, who did he go to war with? Pharisees, because they were the governmental officials. They were the senators. And the reason why Jesus picked fights with them is because they were the government authorities. They were in place, and that's why he had issue with them. God takes the whole concept of leadership seriously. He is the watchman, and there will be a reckoning about oppressors. But what about the oppressed? What about the oppressed? In every government, there are those who are cast aside, whose needs are not taken seriously or discriminated against. Um, What about them? Peter addresses in his letter, we'll talk about one of them. Actually, he talks about two. In the Roman Empire, there's two classes of people that, that were in kind of tough shape, slaves and women. And Peter goes on to talk about slaves. We'll talk about that. We don't have the time to talk about what he says about women, but even to women he says, submit to your husbands. And husbands in the Roman Empire were not always the nicest guys. They had a woman for the home, and then they had a concubine for other kind of interests, and then they had this. And and it was assumed that that's the way it is. And what he ends up saying, Peter ends up saying to them, who exist within these things is, submit to your husbands. What? But what about somebody who is being treated as less than? You're supposed to tolerate that? What does this mean? What he says when he talks about slaves? His advice, frankly, creates more questions than it answers. Texts like this have been used to justify slavery. Used to justify it. Look what it says: Slaves submit to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and considerate but also to those who are harsh. The word harsh means crooked, bent morally messed up. Hmm. What do we do with a text like this? It is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In the Roman Empire, people became slaves by being captured in wars, kidnapped, or born into a slave household. Somebody facing economic hardship could sell themselves to somebody as a slave. They went into slavery in order to pay off their debts and get out from under. Financial problems. Some slaves were well-educated and served as doctors and teachers and managers and Musicians and artisans, Um, some were fairly well educated. Some individuals hearing this or thinking about this said, well slaves are more like today's employers. And that's not true, not true. That's trying to tidy up something by dismissing the difficulty of what Peter is asking. This is not just people who are employers. Slaves in the Greco Roman world were under the control of their masters. And many slaves lived miserably. They could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their owners. And it's not a pretty picture. I read an account of some slaves, and said slaves were used as sexual playthings. It was, I, I, I had to stop reading. They it, it were treated as subhuman. And so we can't tidy this up and and make this say something it's not saying. This advice, what he's saying here, is troubling. Slaves had no legal rights. No legal rights. Masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them, both physically and sexually. Children born into slavery belonged to the masters, not to the parents that gave them birth. So if you're a slave, and you give birth to a child, that child is not yours. You bring them into the world, and he belongs to your master to do with as he pleases and as he wills. One writer says, Despite claims of some New Testament scholars, ancient slavery was not was not more humane than modern slavery. Why are the New Testament writers so mum on slavery? Why don't they say anything about this? Why don't we hear about them writing about overturning slavery? About getting rid of discrimination? A couple thoughts. Again, we're not going to answer all the questions, but we'll raise them and take a look at them. New Testament writers, by and large, were not social revolutionaries. They didn't believe that transforming social structures would transform culture, what they believed. And again, this is a reason, but it's going to seem a little bit dismissive, perhaps. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God, what they believed ultimately. In order to to do in society what was necessary, that needed to be fixed. You could fix social structures, but it really wouldn't fix the problem. Um, New Testament writers concentrated on a godly response of believers to mistreatment. That's where they seem to land. That's where Paul lands. That's where Peter lands. A lot of the individuals in the church were the poor, the enslaved, and the oppressed. They flooded into the church. And a lot of the thing was about how to continue to live your brief existence here in lieu of an eternal existence where... You would be and in, in really free. Um, why were they so mum on slavery? Uh, they again, they that's not what that's not really what their deal was. However, we should not mis- mistake silence for consent. That was an argument because the Bible didn't come out against slavery. Some used that silence to be able to argue that the Bible is really okay with slavery. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Discrimination based on class, race, and gender is prohibited by the Bible. It's just not what Jesus is about in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are sons and daughters of God. So discrimination based on race, class, or gender. Relative to God's will, it is not God's will that that discrimination would exist. So, if the Bible doesn't speak out on it, we're not to take that as a tacit consent. The Bible does not justify abuse and discrimination. However, practically, the fledgling church, this very fragile body of believers who had no power, or very misunderstood, it wasn't practical for them to take on desegregation. Nobody would listen to them. They tried to take a swipe, especially under Paul, racism as it relates to the church. And What they really focused on was if you're a Jew, you're not an automatic insider. And if you're a Gentile, guess what? God has always wanted you to be in his family. And so that's really where the clarity came relative to race. They didn't do much with discrimination based on class. Slaves, says slaves, and not to say discrimination based on gender. Women were just kind of under Paul and under Jesus. They had freedom to be able to move into leadership positions until the end of the first century into the second. We don't see women in leadership. We see them being pushed aside. And it wasn't the purpose of the writers at that point to take on discrimination based on class, and gender. They had their hands full dealing with racial discrimination. Took that on first. Uh, There is precedent in the Bible to allow something short-term and progressively. For instance, when they went into the promised land, you know, we would imagine that, you know, they got the keys to the promised land. and They were able to go wherever they wanted. That's not the way it worked. That's what it says said the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little Deuteronomy 7:22 you will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you the reason why god didn't give them keys to the entire promised land is they couldn't manage it so he gave them pieces little by little i think that's the way it is with discrimination god continues to do this. That's why in the 18th and the 19th century, we see slavery being outlawed by good godly people in England and the United States. We find earlier in the 20th century, women weren't even allowed to vote. And through the movements of individuals who take that on and now gendered, desegregation is occurring, still is in place, and so is racial discrimination still in place. Class discrimination still in place. Um, And these things, as we talk about, they still feel dismissive, especially when he says, slaves, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Submit not only to decent masters, but brutal ones. How did this land? If you lived at that time, and you heard a passage like this, how would this land? What would this trigger in you? What um, says in James 1? The brother in humble circumstances. By the way, we've said this before. Humble circumstances. It's Humble is not self-effacing. Oh, no, oh, don't stop. It wasn't me. No, it was not. Come on. That's not humble. Humble is, I can't use what I have to get what I want. Humble is slave. Humble is, you ask me, what do you want? And if I'm a slave, you ask me, what do you want? I'm going to say, why are you even asking me that question? What I want doesn't matter. I don't get what I want. I do what my master tells me to do. That's why the Roman Empire looked down on slaves of Rome it was the sky's the limit but if you were a slave you were humbled you had no resources with which to turn the favor of anyone in your direction you had no power in the courts you didn't have the money to pay off a judge and even if you could pay off a judge the laws were against you you had no rights you had no rights so you were at the beck and call at the mercy of those who whatever they wanted to do. Um, The brother in humble circumstances, that's what it's talking about. That's what it's talking about. You have no ability to get other people off your back. Limited ability. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way. The rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. It's hard for us to get our arms around it. And again, I I really like being an American. I'm going to talk about our culture. I don't want to go anywhere else. Frankly, though, the air in which the Bible makes sense, it's hard for us. The air in which the Bible makes sense is the air of oppression. If you're a subjugated person, if you're a slave, you can't leverage physical, material, or social resources. You open the Bible and it hits you differently than it hits us in this country. We are rivals of the Roman Empire. We live in one of the most powerful empires that has ever existed again. We do, and there are advantages to this, but spiritually, there are disadvantages to living in the culture that we live in. We have a glass ceiling of what we're going to experience spiritually. Again, that we could say good or bad, but the sky's not the limit with us spiritually. Stories in China about those individuals who were under very oppressive regimes, miracles, what they experienced. We tend to look at biblical passages about miracles, and we tend to try to think about, well, how do we make this work? You know, so how do you, in Jesus' name, or maybe it's that, in Jesus' name, or, you know, maybe, or maybe it's just the way you do your legs, in Jesus' name, or maybe it's just, and you know, the thing we dismiss. He's going to point the miracles at the oppressed. That's what he's going to do. We, we don't even ask who. We ask how. How can we get it? How can we make it work? Maybe if I give a little more money, maybe if I send this guy $1,000 every month and get some holy water, maybe then I'll get... nah it's, it's who. It's who. The era in which the Bible makes sense is the era of oppression. Um, Opening the Bible in an affluent culture changes the way we experience it. We see this in the early church in spades. I think I might have mentioned this in 303. The emperor Diocletian ordered his soldiers to destroy churches, destroy them confiscate, burn their books, strip anyone who resisted of civil rights status and police protection. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to live outside of the protection of this empire. That's in 303. In 312, eight years later, Constantine won a battle, seeing the sign of the cross, and he published an edict declaring that Christianity is a legal religion, allow Each people free freedom to worship, but it seems good to him. In eight years, it went from persecution to open the door into political power. During the following decades, decade, not decades, decade. So 303 persecution, 312, Constantine sees the vision. Now Roman is Christian. Hallelujah. Wonderful. Boy, the sky's the limit now. Very interesting what happened. Constantine opened the treasury to rebuild churches previously targeted for destruction. He opened the coffers and said, that church we tore down here. (laughs) Rebuild that thing. Christian clergy received tax exemptions, special privileges. Constantine opened, he openly preferred Christians when making official appointments. It became fashionable to be a Christian, and that was a good thing. You know what ended up happening? The days of humility were over. Important people began to flood the church. Theological debates surfaced. Loving actions decreased. Divisions increased. In 324, again, then you got this: 303, this persecution; 312, this Constantine. Now, 324, 21 years after the church was being persecuted. Constantine legislated an end to all heretical sects within Christianity and ordered that their property be confiscated. They didn't have, if you didn't agree with this party line that the government said you had to believe in to be in and to be a Christian, if you didn't sign on, uh, you had no right to meet for worship, even in private homes. For the first time now, Within 21 years, Christians killed other Christians because of differences in their views of faith. Within two decades, the persecuted church became the persecuting church. Affluence has its disadvantages, doesn't it? We get we lose what's important. Get pulled into what's peripheral fact is, and in this text, the Bible holds out hope for those who suffer. Here's what Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. The message is harder to embrace in our time and again, in, which in order to be successful, churches have to have, You know, I, I like coffee, but churches have to please people to keep them in the pew will entertain. You'll hear what you want to hear because then you'll sit in the seat. And if you sit in the seat, then you'll be changed. It's very difficult to pull people into a place on the basis of here, we're going to meet your needs, and then urge you to go out and lay your life down. Doesn't really fit, does it? Doesn't really fit, does it? Um, the verse addresses Peter, those who have suffered or are suffering unjustly. It says, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. That's what it says. To this you were called. To what? Bearing up under the pain of unjust suffering. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in the steps. Let me tell you what example is. It's when you have you're trying to teach a kid to write, and you write something on a paper. You ever maybe a like tracing paper, you ever do do that thing, and then you, you go over the top of it, and that's what it is. Jesus gives the example and we trace over it. And he leaves us an example for us to follow in his steps. And what does the example have to do with He teaches us how to deal with unjust suffering. Jesus teaches us how to deal with unjust suffering. Jesus teaches us how to deal with unjust suffering. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was insulted or reviled, he did not insult or revile or threaten in return. I want you to listen to me very carefully. It's not that he didn't do anything. He did something. He did something. But it wasn't to retaliate. And it wasn't to threaten. What did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges just. That's what he did. And that's not nothing. What he did, he took his case and he appealed it to God on high and he said, God, you're going to have to you're going to have to take this one because there's no one here who is going to argue my case. And if you were a slave, there was no one who was going to argue your case. So what they had to learn to do was take their case and they had to learn Believe that God is just and they had to give it over to Him, and they did that because they learned. Because that's what Jesus did, that's how He dealt with it. He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. There are those in our culture who understand this response, who learned to trace and to respond to injustice. Turn back the clock to the Civil Rights Movement and you'll see brothers and sisters in humble circumstances. Put it on the back of buses. You see the movie Selma? (sighs) That was... How many years ago? How many years ago? At least 60s. Civil rights movement took biblical teaching seriously, especially under the direction of Dr. Martin Luther King, whose life we celebrate tomorrow. He described nonviolence as a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. Both morally and practically, he was committed to nonviolence and taught people how to do it. Um, He was introduced to the idea of nonviolence in college. Having grown up in Atlanta, he witnessed segregation and racism every day. He was fascinated from early on by the idea of refusing to cooperate with an evil system. But how do you buck the system? He learned in 1950 as a student at Crozier Theological Seminary, King heard a talk by Dr. Mordecai Johnson about the life and teachings of Mohandas K. Gandhi. And King wrote, Gandhi was the first person to transform Christian love into a powerful force for social change. His stress on love and nonviolence gave King the method for social reform that I had been seeking. He called the principle of nonviolent resistance the guiding light of our movement Said Christ furnished the spirit and motivation while Gandhi furnished the method. King's notion of nonviolence had six key principles. Listen to these. In terms of somebody who's trying to figure out how do we take how do we take and how do we respond without retaliating and threatening? Listen to what he says. First, six principles, key principles. One can resist evil without resorting to violence. That's number one. Two, nonviolence seeks to win the friendship and understanding of the opponent, not to humiliate. Him. And this is applied with hateful people who are spitting. That's amazing. Third, evil itself, not the people committing evil acts should be opposed. Oppose the evil but not the people committing the evil act. Fourth, those committed to nonviolence must be willing to suffer without retaliation, as suffering itself can be redemptive. Fifth, nonviolent resistance avoids external physical violence and internal violence of spirit as well. The nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he also refuses to hate him. The resistor should be motivated by love, King writes, in the sense of the Greek word agape, which means understanding or redeeming goodwill for all men. The sixth principle is that the nonviolent resistor must have a deep faith in the future, stemming from the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. Does that sound to you like somebody who took Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 seriously in terms of framing a response to unjust suffering? It does to me very seriously. Um, black power advocates began to reject nonviolence. King lamented that some were losing hope. And This is what he said a couple of quotes as we close. Occasionally in life, King writes, once one develops a conviction so precious and meaningful that he will stand on it till the end, this is what I have found in nonviolence. Again, I'll bring the worship team up. And One last quote from King. I really like this. He says, Darkness Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The beauty of nonviolence is that in its own way and in its own time, it seeks to break the chain reaction of evil. Father, thank you for your word and its challenge. Um, If we're going to be like Jesus, it's because we focus on your promises and we end up being able to partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world because of desires. So if we're going to be able to ascend to the things that you tell us about, it's going to be because we are aware of your commitments to us and we believe them. And as we believe them, they enable us to function in a way that is otherworldly. Thanks for examples of individuals to and through whom you have pushed discrimination at least aside somewhat. Uh, It's still here, but I ask that you would continue to help us to be the men and women that you'd have us to be. Be with us as we walk roads that are difficult sometimes thanks that we don't have to walk them alone In jesus name amen